Hey there. It's uh, Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I am your host, Tanner Iskra. I'm going to skip most of the intro, music, and whatnot. If you clicked on this bonus episode, I'm assuming you know what we're normally all about. But we're skipping most of this uh, as it is a bonus on pretty, on a pretty serious subject that has more than probably definitely affected your life in some form or fashion. We're talking about COVID, and we're giving you some updates and some insights on how VA is responding or supporting the fight, supporting you, however you want to slice it. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And it's been a while since we've had a COVID update. I didn't know if we were going to do another one. And you can find the others in our archive and on the blogs on blogs.va.gov. But some new information and some new subject matter experts were brought to my attention. And before I talked with them, I decided to bring those conversations to you as they happened. The first conversation is going to be surrounding VA's role in the COVID-19 vaccine trials that you're hearing about in the news. As you probably know, Operation Warp Speed is a collaborative public-private effort that involves many pharmaceutical companies and crosses many roles of government, the CDC, Health and Human Services, and yes, the Department of Veterans Affairs. We have clinical trials currently being conducted at over 50 VA medical facilities, and it was bigger than I thought, as you will hear in the interview. It's pretty unprecedented. I also heard that they're looking for veterans to volunteer in the vaccine trials. So I recently linked up with Dr. Molly Clote, an Army veteran herself, who is the director of the Office of Research Protections, Policy, and Education, to hear from her what these trials were all about and how veterans were to be protected. Because me, I have no idea what's involved in a clinical trial. And that's what I wanted to talk about. So here it is. Take a listen. Now, you're the, you are the Director of Office and Research Protections, Policy, and Education. Uh, doctor, that's that's a lot of words. <laughs> what is, what is, that's a lot of government speak. What does all that mean? It is a lot of government speak. Uh, <laughs> and it really boils down to, we are the office that oversees human subjects protections in all of the research that the Department of Veterans Affairs um, conduct. So we set the policy. Uh, we run the central IRB, which is an institutional review board, which does the ethical review of some of our big multi-site studies across um, VHA, the Veterans Health Administration. And then we're responsible to do the education uh, of people in the protection of human subjects. And um, uh, it's a great mission to have. Um, because we really serve not only the veterans who we're protecting in the research, but we get to interact with the researchers. We get to see all the different research that's going on across uh, VHA, and it's just a wonderful mission. Very good. So, And you're a veteran yourself, correct? Uh, you went to ROTC at JMU, former colonel? I did, yeah. I served 30 years. I retired in 2018 uh, from the Army. Gotcha. Do you know retired Lieutenant General uh, Raymond Mason? 
I don't. He's currently running the Army Emergency Relief Fund, former guest. Uh, he also went to JMU. Actually, he said he helped stand, stood up the ROTC program at JMU. And so you being a JMU ROTC alumni, I thought maybe there was a connection there. No, I will look forward to uh, hooking up with him at some sort of alumni association meeting and finding out uh, more about his efforts. Okay, yeah. No, um, he's he's in our archives here at Born the Battle, so if you get a chance, go ahead and check it out. Um, okay, how did first of all, how did you find your way from the Army to this position here with NBA? Actually, it was a really natural transition for me. So I started off... Um, uh, as a researcher, um, you know, as a doctor, um, doing clinical research at Walter Reed uh, during my residency fellowship and my early staff years, and um, found that the the research regulatory process was very complicated, and had the opportunity to move over to the research department at Walter Reed, where um, they had a similar uh, function in terms of managing. Uh, human subjects protection and research policies, um, but on a you know a, a smaller scale, of course, than what I'm doing now. But but in going over to the Walter Reed Department of um, Research, uh, I really got a sense of um, that there you know we needed some leadership in this uh, area, and I joined that department. I helped them streamline function. Ultimately, oversaw the similar process for the eight Army medical centers, um, and then uh, the Surgeon General of the Army asked me to come up to her office and oversee um, all of Army human research protection. So uh, when I retired from the Army, um, VA had this position opened, and for me, uh, it was getting back to um, you know biomedical, clinical research, but on the largest scale that there is uh, in our country as the, as the largest integrated healthcare system in the country with more facilities doing research than, than any other group. Um, it, it, for me, was that next step in my career. Mm-hmm. What does it mean for you to be ro- working in this role with NBA? I'll have to say, Tanner, that it is uh, a great privilege, really, to um, be on a team that looks at all of the potential roadblocks that there could be to getting a research trial up and running or establishing a policy um, that we can implement across the whole VA. But, but it's, it's great to have a team that can, can go through, evaluate these roadblocks and figure out, you know, ethical and regulatorily compliant ways to solve those problems so that our researchers can bring um, these, you know, treatments um, and bring these um, uh, research projects uh, to our veterans so that our veterans have the same access to cutting edge um, uh, treatments that they could get if they went to Johns Hopkins or the Mayo Clinic or or even at times to the NIH. Yeah, very good. That's that's why we're, we're here talking today. You mentioned clinical trials. You know, your office reached out and said, Tanner, do you want to talk to those in VA that are assisting with COVID-19 vaccine trials? We need to get veterans to know uh, so they can participate. And I said, of course, that's that's pretty exciting. And that's pretty cutting, cutting edge stuff that you guys are working on. It's not only relevant to veterans, uh, but really to the entire world. So, yeah. <laughs> for, for those of us in 
the research world. This is one of the most exciting times. Um, as, as tragic as uh, this pandemic has been, and, and uh, you know, our hearts go out to everyone you know who has lost someone as as a result of this pandemic. Yeah. But it, it it challenges us to and and motivates us to work really hard um, to bring these clinical trials to try to find a way to either find a vaccine or something therapeutic um, for the people who are affected by this. And, and ultimately, the vaccines, of course, then would prevent you um, from from getting it or at least decreasing your symptoms um, yeah. if you did contract it after you got vaccinated. Not make it as deadly. You know, I, 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 I understand what you're trying to say, Doc. Uh, you know, COVID-19 is terrible and it's, and it's, and it's, you know, just like Ebola, just like swine flu, whatever you, whatever you call it, a deadly disease, but it gives researchers and, and, and clinicians and, and people that are, that are working on vaccines. It gives you, it gives you a chance to help the world. Um, now there are a huge batch of vaccines now that are coming up in clinical trials, right? Or, or are they going on right now? Uh, at, and they're at 17 VAs across the country, right? Well, just the Janssen trial is that um, is being stood up at 17 of our uh, VA medical centers. Okay. But we've got more than 50 medical centers who are participating in um, clinical trials for COVID nineteen. Okay. Wow. So, so you got you. You mentioned Janssen. Is is this uh, who's running the trials? Are they, are they VA developed, or are they new ones out of the private sector that we've been hearing about that's out there on the news? Right. That we're we're part of the Operation Warp Speed. Maybe you've heard about it. You know that. I think so. Um, between, I think so. Yeah. Health. health <laughs> if, you and, in, if you live in the Beltway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So Health and Human Services and NIH, you know, and and uh, have partnered together. They've created Operation Warp Speed. So the the trials that we're working on, some of them are under the umbrella of Operation Warp Speed, and some of them are trials that we have developed in house. Uh, within VA for for other therapeutics that you know we identified um, you know as potentially beneficial, particularly to our veterans. Gotcha. So uh, public private partnership. Um, you got Janssen. What other what other ones are out there right now that VA so is, is assisting? Right. There's there's the Moderna vaccine trial, which is part of um, Operation Warp Speed. The AstraZeneca trial. Um, there's the Pfizer vaccine trial uh, that's going on uh, at Cleveland um, that's outside of Operation Warp Speed, but, but another trial that we did join. Uh, there's two um, uh, therapeutics trials that are starting under an umbrella of something called the Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines. It's called the ACTIVE Initiative, yeah. and um, we are participating in ACTIVE uh, two and active three right now. One is an inpatient uh, therapeutics or, or treatment uh, project, and the other is an outpatient uh, treatment project for people affected with COVID. Therapeutics, uh, you know that that word's getting tossed around a lot. That's is is that pretty much just hey, it's not a vaccine, but it will help you get through the the disease. Right. So a therapeutic is, and you can look at the word and it's, it's therapy, right? So yeah. a vaccine is something you want to give to someone before they get, you know, infected. Yep. Uh, a therapeutic or a therapy is something you give to somebody after they've been um, uh, affected by it. Very good. Very good. Abs outstanding. Um, okay. So have you ever seen like this many trials for the same type of, you know, for COVID-19, for one type of virus at one time? 
Uh, I have not. I mean, this has been a massive, um, you know, re-engineering of everybody's priorities across government. And in my 31 years in government, I have never seen the cooperation across government like we've seen. Now, um, you know, I was uh, not even in medical school yet when um, all of the HIV work was going on. So it's possible but that this same sort of effort, you know, was going on then. But, but you know, since, um, since I've been involved in uh, research, uh, I've not seen something like this. Yeah, it, it just sounds like it's all one huge coordinated effort. Uh, I mean, like you said, across government, uh, multiple you know, multiple trials at one time. It just seems like a huge, massive undertaking that I've never heard of in, in, before either. Um, now, these trials, they're at VA medical centers, at 50, like you said, because veterans are because veterans are taking part in the trials, correct? And, or, they, or do they want veterans to take part in the trials? Do they need veterans to sign up? Is it all three? Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. Okay. They are big, sighing, yes. We would like... Well, we would like, you know, all Americans, of course, to participate, but um, um, but veterans in particular, um, you know, they're great at volunteering uh, to start with. Um, they've already given so much to their country. Asking them to do something again is another ask um, by the country. And yeah. so we would like, you know, all Americans to continue, you know, to consider participating. But but um, especially uh, our older veterans. um demographically they have been affected uh, by this virus and so yeah. we would love to have our older veterans participate and then the most critical groups that we need to have participate are our african american our hispanic you know all of our non white populations and and it's it's important for two reasons um first of all they've been the most affected are the minority um populations but, but secondly, when you have people from, um, you know, the African-American and Hispanic communities participate in a vaccine trial, when the vaccine gets a, an approval, if it gets the approval from the FDA, it's more likely to be accepted by those communities. And, and that's really the goal of these trials. It's not just to invent a vaccine. The goal is to then get communities to accept that vaccine and take that vaccine so that we can um, protect those communities against the virus. Have you guys considered uh, Native American uh, as a demographic as well? Because I remember when it first got really hot, the Navajo, the articles that came out of the Navajo Nation about what they went through during the height of the, and the, of the deadliness of this virus, they, per capita wise, they got hit extremely hard. Absolutely. And our VAs actually cared for many of them uh, at our VA medical centers. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a fourth mission in VA to, you know, to care for um, citizens who are non-veterans uh, when there's, uh, you know, an overflow or a need for that. And and we did help the Native American population. Yeah. Um, and absolutely. And we we have just recently formed a subcommittee of our National Research Advisory Council to focus on diversity and inclusion, um, not just for these trials, although that's what we're focused on now, but but going forward, um, you know, it's a, it's really a national need. Yeah, because you got you want to make sure it works in all demographics. You want to make sure it works in all physiological, 
you know, sectors of, of the human, of the human experience, right? Well, that's right. We're learning that, you know, genetics and, and all kinds of factors play into our immune systems. And so, and that's what a vaccine works on. It works on your, you know, your immune system. And so we want to give these vaccines the broadest exposure that we can during these phase three safety and, and um, trials to see if they actually work and protect against the virus so that we can make sure that they do work in all the different populations. Gotcha. Tracking. Um, not to, I, I understand it and I get it. Um, but to me, it's kind of scary to take part in a vaccine trial, especially, especially with COVID-19. You know, I have a spouse that's high risk to the virus. Um, you talk about protections. What, what precautions are taken with, with someone that takes part in a vaccine trial? Right. So what is really important to know is that when you're in a vaccine trial, we're not giving you any type of an infectious agent. We're not, you know, we're not going to make you contagious, right? We are okay. giving you a vaccine that's going to build up your immunity against it, but you're not, you're not going to become contagious by participating. And, and just because you participate in the vaccine trial, we also don't want you to stop you know, social distancing or wearing your mask or washing your hands or okay. not touching your face or all those sorts of things. We want you to continue taking all of those same precautions uh, if you participate in the trial. So it's not, hey, take a vaccine, you're taking a little bit of the virus or, hey, it's not. It's a, so you're going to, you know, get a little bit sick to see if it fixes it or, hey, it's not take the vaccine and then go to a concert or anything. We're going oh, to, we're, no. we're going to, we're going to host a, <laughs> we're going to host a vaccine concert, you know, to see if any of this works. We're going to have some, some controls in there. See, I don't yeah, know. I, absolutely don't, I, don't, not. I, have, I have no idea how it works. <laughs> and we, and I completely understand that that, that is, and, and there are people who have talked about what are called challenge trials, right? Where you give someone a vaccine and then you challenge them with the agent. It's what we do with malaria. Okay. Um, we, but we have a cure for a certain strain of malaria that we do challenge trials for. Right now, we would not consider it ethical to do a challenge trial against this virus because we don't have a, a you know, a full-on absolute cure, yeah. right? So we, we wouldn't do that uh, today. Or, or, so, a ther- or a therapeutic that, that, that you, well, you know for and, sure. It's like, hey, this is it. That's right. That's right. Tracking. Okay, very good. Um, now, how long are the trials? How long? How long is it? How long are you? If you if say I'm like, hey, okay, I'm in. Let's do it. Um, how long is that trial going to be? So each of them vary in length depending on um, you know what has been approved by these ethical review bodies for how long they think people should be followed. But but on average, um, they're they're about two years. Okay. And um, and to start, you know, it would wow. be come in, get all the screening done, and then um, uh, get your vaccine. Now, some of the trials, it's a two-shot regimen, right? You have to, like some of your other childhood immunizations, you have to get two or three of them for it to be fully effective. And then for other other of the vaccine trials, it's just one vaccine. So um, it's one shot, you know, and and then you're finished. But what we want to do is track you closely. And that, I think, is part of that safety that you were talking about earlier, where people who come into clinical trials have a lot of oversight. And there are a lot of stopping rules 
that are built into these trials to make sure that they are safe, right? So, so we're at phase three in the trial um, and, ha- and how you put a trial together. So there's a phase one that's just a few people, a phase two, which gets you up to about 100 people, and then a phase three trial now, which is like 30,000 people. Mm. And what we are looking for are signals of, are there going to be problems when you introduce this vaccine into a larger community? Yeah. But but there's a whole groups of people that are watching this on a daily basis who have the ability to stop if if something if something's not quite right. Yeah, very good. So there's com- there's continuously monitoring during the trial during the those, that, that, the time of the trial. Absolutely. Okay. Quick question: uh, You said two years is the average. Is that going to be the average for for a vaccine for for COVID? I, I know there's been differing and while and and there's been differing opinions of like when. A, a vaccine would become available. And now if the trials last two years, is it, is it going to be, Hey, it's good, but then we're still going to, this is the, this is what we're calling the vaccine, but we're still going to do monitoring afterwards for a year or two. Right. So, um, so there's a couple of uh, things to unpack there. So, yeah. so first of all, we, we do have a couple of vaccines that are on the cusp of getting reviewed by the FDA. So they've finished there are phase three trials already. Wow. Okay. These are new ones, right? So you have to imagine we're trying to vaccinate the world, yeah. right? Yeah. One vaccine, one company is not going to be able to do that for everybody. And, and one particular vaccine might not be the most effective in every population, but we don't know that yet. And so we want to continue doing these trials. We want to continue learning um, you know, from these, and we want to continue to monitor uh, what uh, potential health effects there might be. Yeah. And so um, just because, you know, one vaccine might get uh, um, what's called an emergency use authorization from the FDA it, to, to begin to start vaccinating people because it got through phase three, it doesn't mean we want to stop all these other trials. Yeah, could you know, could mutate, could could do a lot. The virus itself could move, so you got to continue monitoring and and trial right. trialing. And I'm, I hear all that. Now, is there is there payment, or are they asking for volunteers? Well, we ask you. We we of course all research in the United States today. You are required to volunteer. I mean, you volunteer. You're not required to volunteer, but yeah. you volunteer. Yeah. The requirements of the ethical review boards is that people volunteer. There is no one that can be directed. There's there's misconceptions out there that uh, um, uh, the military can be ordered into these kind of trials, and they can't be. All of this has to be voluntary. Okay. And um, but the companies do give um, monetary compensation for your time and effort and things like that. Each, um, you know, the amount of which varies depending on, you know, how many times you have to come in and be seen and, and all sorts of, of different factors. Uh, it differs on different, different companies tracking. Okay. So say a veteran is, is hearing us and they're like, all right, cool. I'm in, let's do it. Um, how do they take part in these trials? How, how do they sign up? So the easiest way right now, we just launched a uh, COVID-19 um, research uh, registry at VA, and it's research.va.gov, G-O-V, mm-hmm. slash 
COVID, C-O-V-I-D, mm-hmm. dash one nine dot CFM. Okay. Uh, I'm, we're going to leave that in there, but I'll also ask you that you uh, email it to me and I'll make sure oh, okay. I'll make sure it ends up in the blog of this episode on, okay. blog, on blogs.va.gov. So if, if somebody wants Great. to go and click on that website, they can go to blogs.va.gov, find the blog on, the, on this episode and just click on the thing there and, and, and knock it out. Uh, very cool. Um, Dr. Clo, we, we've, uh, we've had a very short conversation, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything I might have missed or didn't ask that you think is important to share with anybody that's listening to this? Um, I think the, the biggest thing that, uh, you know, we keep talking about is not only, um, for the vaccine trials, but for everyone's just general health. And we had a meeting this week with the U S surgeon general, um, vice admiral Adams, who reminded us that everyone getting, uh, the flu shot this year is going to be critically important because symptoms of the flu can seem like symptoms of COVID. And, um, and if you, you know, get your flu shot, you know, and you're, you're going to be less likely to develop those types of symptoms, less likely to be going into hospitals where, you know, you might get exposed to, um, you know, all kinds of different things. So I would just um, put in a plug for everybody this year uh, to get your flu shot. And, um, and when there is a uh, vaccine available, you know, consider it um, for yourself, consider it for your family, consider it to try to get life back to normal. Um, I would just ask people to, um, uh, you know, to just think about um, participating and, and getting a vaccine. We know each year that only about 35 to 40 percent of Americans get the flu vaccine every year and uh, and really want to stress that if, if there is a year in the past that you haven't gotten your flu shot, this is the year to get your flu shot. So I'll leave it with that, Tanner. For me, that conversation was fascinating because, again, I know nothing of that world. I want to thank Dr. Klo and her team for reaching out to Born the Battle and talking with me. And like the good doctor said, for more information on these trials, you can go to research.va gov forward slash covid hyphen 19 dot cfm all right our second interview is with dr chad kessler who is our director of emergency medicine and urgent care here at va he's also a professor of medicine over at duke university i said over like it's near me but it's it's out in raleigh north carolina you know we read off a lot on the press releases throughout Born the Battle concerning COVID procedures at hospitals. And I know that he was one of the gentlemen in the room. So I want to know if any has changed or will change concerning these procedures based on the virus's activity. I also wanted to talk about the unique communication method he employed internally here at VA, which was an internal podcast, that got doctors to quickly share techniques and methods to treat the virus. Here was our talk. Take a listen. Welcome to Born the Battle, and thank you for, for taking the time to come in and talk with us about emergency and urgent care and how they how COVID how VA has responded in, in the current world we live in. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Chad, you oversee 141 
uh, emergency departments and urgent care centers. Um, you must have been in some of the discussions when it was when COVID was hot, when and when VA conducted some of its fourth mission uh, down in New Orleans and some other places. Uh, did we do some of that in New York as well? We did. We did a lot of the fourth mission work um, in New York. Uh, that was actually where a lot of this started and where we learned a lot and were able to share some of those practices. But uh, New York, New Orleans, uh, the first ones that were really um, got hammered by yeah. this disease. Yeah. Did, did emergency care have a role in some of that? We had a huge role um, because sort of front door and uh, what you would expect is that um, the EDs, emergency departments, urgent care centers would just get inundated and blasted. But what we found was not that. I mean, initially, yes, people were scared, came in. But what happened actually is that we got some great information out. And our ED volumes over the past months, not now, now it's picking back up. But when it first started, January, February, March, actually dropped and dropped significantly. ED meaning? Emergency department. Very good, very good. Yeah, yeah. We the, in the the lay term person, I think, is more ER. But in the in the biz, if you will, uh, ED or emergency department is is the is the language they like that a lot better than ERs. But interchangeable. Yeah. So um, yeah, the volumes went way down, not only in VA but sort of across the nation, as a couple things. One, there was that fear; no one wanted to go out and then contract this disease if they didn't have it already. And B, I think we did an excellent job of sort of reaching out to people. And saying, hey, let's do this over the phone. Let's use virtual care. The appointments in virtual care, VA, Video Connect, any kind of Zoom calls, anything like that skyrocketed. So we were able to do a lot more virtual care. Yeah, it exploded. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Um, yeah, I remember when we first opened up uh, for COVID patients, there was that press release that read, that I read off about uh, contacting your local VA medical center about you know the certain procedures that are available within your own VA medical center. Uh, concerning emergency and urgent care, what are the procedures now for both COVID and non-COVID patients? Uh, has any of it yeah. changed? Absolutely. So, and, and let me take you back a little bit. I, I got to answer a, a little of that, but the reality is emergency medicine did a lot more because when people would come in, no matter how they came in, they'd usually try to limit it to one or two entrances. And often that was the emergency department because that's yeah. where we want to be able to have the, the, the tent set up. We did a lot of outdoor tent um, screens across the nation, San Diego and some other places. Uh, New Orleans did this too. And so what happened is even before people got into the hospital, we'd be able to create these outer rims, if you will, to separate the hot and cold zone or COVID and non-COVID potentially. So what mm. we called it was ILI, again, another in the biz term, influenza-like illness. People come into the emergency department, they don't come in waving their hands, say, hey, I'm Tanner and I have you know COVID or I have appendicitis. Yeah. It's more like I'm coughing and I have a fever or I have belly pain. And then it's our job as emergency physicians to go figure out what you have. And so in these tents, we did great screening. And oftentimes the nurses are amazing, amazing triage emergency medicine nurses, smartest nurses in the whole building, um, would be able to look at them and do their triage screen and separate them into, okay, this is potentially ILI, that influenza-like illness. They're sick. Maybe they have COVID. Maybe they have flu, just some type of cold, respiratory illness. Or they have something else like, hey, I have back pain and it's been bothering me and it's really bad and I can't walk now. Well, that's sort of this different zone. And so we'd separate people. So when they once they get in, 
um, to the emergency department, even before then they would get admitted or go upstairs, we'd have a little sense about who they are, who they were, and what type of protection the staff and the patients would need. So then you asked sort of how did that change? Well, before, during the heat of this, everything was COVID. I remember getting a call from uh, my friends in New Orleans and they passed on our EDIS board, our ED information system board. It's a tracking board. It's, it's a glorified version of a whiteboard that, that you see tracks um, the patients when they come in and what room they are, like you'd see in any type of, of emergency department. Okay. And on the board, every one of them was the color designated for COVID. So it was no longer this person has COVID and this person is not. It was this is a heart failure COVID. This is a pneumonia COVID. This is a UTI COVID. Everything was that. So when patients come in, they would be appropriately protected. And then we and our staff, whether it's the MSAs, um, the triage nurses, the physicians, full on protection for PPE. They have a gown, they have a face shield, mask. Some use the respirators, which are the, the N95 masks, so have really good protection. Now that's changed. And honestly, it really depends where you are. So there's certainly some hot zones, some high prevalence where people still are going to treat everyone like it's potentially COVID or that ILI yeah. and wear the appropriate mask and gown. But in many places, you're not. And after we do that screening and we're pretty confident that it's not related to a respiratory illness, the physician might wear a mask and a face shield um, and the patient would be as opposed to, say, a full N95 respirator. Just in case, just to protect the patient as well. That, that's our first and foremost, protect the patient, protect the staff. And yeah. I think it's an important note that our face coverings that we use, the masks that we now wear out in public, um, people need to recognize that that doesn't necessarily protect them. I mean, it does a, a little to a point, but really what you're doing when you're wearing that face covering or surgical mask is protecting others. If you yeah. cough, you sneeze, if you, you know, to just talking, it prevents a lot. And there's a lot of great videos you can see out there about those germs spreading out. And so that's why we want everyone, of course, so, so we can be protected as well. Very good. Very good. Is it safe to say that um, all the PPE in the very beginning, all those red designations of COVID was because of how hot it was at the time? And then as it gradually became cooler in some areas, that was the reason behind now we're changing some of these these procedures. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think a lot of it had to do with prevalence too. It's very hard to set one standard for absolutely everything when yeah. you have a prevalence of 20% in X community and in the mountains in Montana, there was zero. And so for us to say that every patient that comes in in a clinic where prevalence in that community is zero to use this type of PP wouldn't have been smart or responsible. Mm. Because again, with a limited supply, you have to be smart about this or else very quickly we would run out and then not have enough for anyone. And this is in VA, this is around the nation. Yeah. If everyone out there for every type of encounter of everything would put on a full gown mass respirator, you know, that's a challenge. So you need to be smart about what we can and should use at different areas and different times. Do we have procedural plans in case we have to ramp up uh, COVID and emergency response care again? Or do we have plans on how to open up if COVID becomes more treatable or less deadly or a vaccine yeah. becomes available? Are we, are we flexible in that area right now when, in, in terms of PPE and in terms of other procedures? We are. Um, we learned a lot through that January through yeah. uh, April, May time. And what we used, we learned and shared that from New York and New Orleans to Chicago and Detroit to the West Coast. Seattle was one of the first, uh, first case, first death. Um, 
And then it never hit. They did such a good job with socially distancing and appropriate PPE and good community standards that really Seattle was largely spared. Again, you can't say that all oh, everybody was hit to some point, but not nearly like what we saw in New York and New Orleans. Yeah. And so what we did is we learned the VA, one of our superpowers is the fact that we do have 141 EDs and urgent cares and 150 plus sites, and we can cross level. Um, and if somebody is, is not using their 12 ventilators in a site in Vizin 10, in our network 10, say in, in the upper Midwest, that we can share some of those with another site that is. Maybe they need to come into Chicago or Detroit or on the East Coast. And we can easily transport those supplies, ventilators. And we did that. I remember sitting on calls with their undersecretary and team, and they would talk about this cross-leveling. So no one was in, in a hurt at all whether it came with swabs or testing material or protective personal equipment, you name it. I thought that was a real superpower of VA. And now again, we've learned, we've leveled, things have settled out, but of course now things are coming back as we reopen parts of the economy, as more and more people come in for appointments and whatnot, we're seeing more cases. And, and we're re-entering into the flu season. So it's kind of a a season that, that kind of breeds that kind of, is that, is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. We were really concerned about that tenor. And it's a great plan. I'm so glad you bring that up. We did a whole couple episodes on COVID and 20 about flu. And first of all, we really encourage everyone who can and should to go get a flu shot, especially this season. And it's community immunity. It's not just for you. And veterans are so amazing about protecting their brothers and sisters and, and their families about that. So I know I see a lot of patients. I'm still in the clinic and the EDs and I I don't usually get that doc. It causes some pain or I had a bad reaction. Well, if you're not allergic and, and, and it's something that you can do, it's definitely something we should do this year. Really cool, Tanner. If we look at the flu season, and what's neat is that we can do this in different areas of, um, of the world. And so we see what the flu season looks like even before it hits North America. So in South America, different countries, flu season is sort of already going. And we are seeing the lowest if not no flu season in some of these Southern Hemisphere countries that we have ever seen. Why? Why is that? Is it just a lighter? Then no, it's because people are doing smart things to protect themselves, like wearing masks, like socially distancing. And again, you can't live life like this forever. This is a hundred year pandemic, but the flu rates we're seeing in the Southern Hemisphere are just so incredibly low to like nothing. It doesn't even look like we're having a flu season. We are hoping here in North America and the VA that that trend follows, that we will also have a very light flu season. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, now, is that – I've heard rumors about the flu shot and how they make the flu shot, and this is kind of getting off COVID for a sec. But, sure. Um, is the flu, the flu shot, is that kind of developed through what you see in the Southern Hemisphere, and then you kind of – they try to, yeah, get the, it's, it's a seasonal uh, vaccine. So it is based on the strain, flu A, flu B, uh, whatever is going around that year. It's not the same year to year. It changes in some years. We honestly don't get it perfect at first. Sometimes there's a second strain that comes out. We've targeted vaccine against influenza A strain, whatever. And it turns out that later on in the flu season, December, January, uh, you see that modify and change, mutate. And so we have to work at it again. And sometimes the flu shots aren't as effective as we'd like them to be, maybe 50%. Sure. So people say, but wait, I got a flu shot. How can I get the flu? Well, that's possible. Uh, many years, it's, it's extremely protective. Some years it is and not as much. And so being smart, just like we're doing now, 
for yeah. COVID will also protect you against the flu. The fact that you're covering your face, you're keeping a little bit of distance, you're washing your hands. I can't emphasize that enough. Wash your hands. So all these things that we should be doing, we're probably paying a little bit more attention now in 2020 than we have in past years. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's good to get some background and on the flu shot. Cause I don't, I don't think, I think a lot of people have questions about how that gets developed. So appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. You, you mentioned COVID 20 and, and you mentioned about, um, sharing information between the VAs and, and you guys did that in a, in a unique way. You hosted a, a vidcast, an internal vidcast called COVID and 20. And it was, a, it was, a, like I said, it was a very unique way for doctors and medical staff to communicate COVID procedures, treatment, and therapeutics to each other in doing that. What have you learned about COVID and about the VA staff working in that environment every day? Yeah, neat. And I've uh, been just so, I don't know, I, I can't, can't tell you how exciting it has been. We started it off um, very small, homegrown. We wanted to share the lessons, like I said, from New Orleans and New York with the rest of the country because there was uh, clearly waves going on. Yeah. And so when I got calls from Julie Slick, in New Orleans saying, Chad, I haven't taken off my you know gown and PPE this entire 12-hour shift. I intubated seven people and this is crazy and we can't do business as normal. I said, my gosh, we got to learn from this quickly, how you're doing prone ventilation, different intubation strategy techniques, how you're screening. Why does everyone need to develop this 150 times? So we took what we learned from New York and New Orleans, put it up on the air, grabbed some people after their shift. This was low tech, let me tell you. Yeah. Put on the Adobe Connect, flashed it open, and, and there you go. And we had 600, 800, 1,000 people tune in. And again, this wasn't so much a veteran facing as a staff facing to educate our front lines. It was from the front lines for the front lines. Yeah. And we got amazing feedback. And in this time, people were really down. I mean, we had people not checking emails, forget about trying to get messaging out that way or education, yeah. not doing that. You're going on shift, coming home and sleeping and doing again. And so what we found is that we needed to find a way, unique way to get this information out to the field, to the front lines really quickly. We weren't waiting for New England Journal of Medicine articles to come out for these folks to read. Yeah. And so we put them on, we recorded it. And as I was saying, again, kind of some dark times. And what we did is we just, we added a bit of humanity. It wasn't enough to just, you know, go and say, hey, this is what you do for prone ventilation. Here's a PowerPoint. Like people weren't just going to listen to that. Yeah. So we put a little music on um, and Josh, our, our AO, our Marine AO, we called Jarvis because he does everything, played some live music. And then we did some feel good videos as people were starting to come together and, and do a Bohemian Rhapsody song from the nurses in greater LA. And we would put <laughs> that on. And uh, along with this content with some experts who have done it, People around the country really wanted to hear it. So, of course, not everyone's available at whatever time you choose, but we recorded it and people could listen via um, a podcast or watch the video. And, you know, the first show, the one filmed in New Orleans has like over 10,000 of our staff watching it. Yeah. So now we get somewhere between 600, 800 and 1,000, maybe 1,500 if we're talking about vaccines. Um, and then, you know, it's just a big tail on the thousands that are that are listening in. And I think what we've done is, we created a great way to get training out to our frontline clinical staff and others. You know, we celebrated MSAs and EMS, people cleaning the beds. They had to know what's going on too. Sure. But with that addition of humanities and some humor and some fun and slides, we do some chai awards. I love chai. So we did the COVID Hero Award for Innovation and just celebrated people with a, a, a toast to, to chai to them for doing something cool like creating an intubation box 
or doing uh, walks to get people out in a safe manner. There was just so many things. So we celebrated us a little bit. Doing the, doing your best to increase the morale too. That's that's important. Exactly. But you're also getting some training out there to the, to the frontline staff in a very unique way. You know, me as a, as a, as a podcaster, you know, we have the VA Podcast Network. I thought that was very unique, very cool. Um, uh, you know, I, I know, it, you know, it was, it, it wasn't an external podcast like we talked about. It was an internal, but I hope, I hope that you do consider maybe having an external podcast for the VA podcast network in the future. And we, we, we should get with public affairs and, and figure a way to do yeah. that. Well, it'd be great to get a veteran facing one that uh, gave them reliable and trustworthy information because so many people now, where are you getting your media from or your news? And this is something you can trust when it's coming from VA. Well, I don't think it's just uh, veteran facing. I think it's outward facing content from the VA period because you 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 would only not cross over into 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 veterans. You'd cross over into the medical community community. You know, with with your background as as being a doctor in emergency yeah. care. You know, and and there's a whole section of healthcare podcasts. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to see that in the future. I'm all game. <laughs> all right. Um, okay, Chad. On on the basis of COVID and what you've learned in COVID, is there anything that I may have missed? or haven't asked that you think is important to share? Yeah, gosh, there's, there's so many things that we've learned. I think most important things that we talked about, especially with the flu season come up, about washing your hands, six foot distance. I, I find in our veteran population, people are really good because that community immunity is so big and they're not just looking out from themselves, but veterans are looking out for all other veterans and family and friends in their community. We oftentimes get this incredible look into disease processes, epidemics, pandemics now. And uh, I hear what's going on in the community. It's a small emergency medicine community. So I see and hear what's going on in academic hospital X or community hospital. And things often are going crazy. And in the VA, although this is a, it's impossible not to be a crazy time, it's controlled. People know what they do. They have discipline. They know what they need to do. And I find that that's just incredible. If we can keep that up, keep up the innovation that we're doing. And here's the big thing. There are so many, 350,000 employees across VA, frontline staff, 150 plus hospitals. We have amazingly wicked smart doctors, researchers. I just had people coming on talking about convalescent plasma yesterday, how we're using people who recovered from COVID, their blood to treat other COVID patients. How neat is that? We're in trials now, vaccine trials. Yeah. We need to get this stuff out there. So we can't have someone in Durham doing this amazing thing and someone in Boise, Idaho have no idea what they're doing and have to recreate something. We got to use this superpower that is the VA and, you know, 150 plus sites covering their entire country and beyond and share all this information, these great ideas, these innovations across the network, dissemination science. If we can get it out through programs like yours, uh, through other podcasts, that's how we're going to sort of get through this and everything else. We are the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. That has something to say. Bigger than Kaiser, bigger than Intermountain, bigger than any of the academics. And we have, again, the best and the brightest people. You pull them in, you share what they're doing, at least the better and better in healthcare. If we put that wellness piece in, and I think that's a big point, Tanner, we got to have that time for wellness to take care of us. Happy employees will make happy veterans, that same Southwest thing. You know, if they're happy, the people who are flying are happy. Well, I'll tell you what, if the doctors and the nurses and the MSAs and clerks are happy, our patients are going to be happy. 
Our care is assumed in the VA. When you walk in, you are going to get outstanding medical care from nurses, from doctors. It's everything else that's going to put us over the top. It's, it's greeting and say, hey, Mr. Johnson, how are you doing today? Instead of Johnson 4715, you know, that's, that's not the way we greet veterans. It should Absolutely. be that friendly smile. If we can do that, we're going to win. I want to thank Dr. Kessler for reaching out to talk with us about his department's past, present, and future role as we fight this virus. For more information on VA's emergency medical care, you can visit va.gov forward slash community care, and you can navigate to both COVID-19 guidance and emergency medical care tabs. That's it for this bonus episode of Born the Battle. As always, if you like this podcast episode, you can hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for tuning in here to Born the Battle, and we'll see you right here on our normally scheduled day on Monday. Take care.